Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing on in our series in the life of Jacob, and here James Jordan is going to be discussing the first seven verses of Genesis chapter 49 as Jacob blesses his sons. We really hope that you enjoyed this time of teaching, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here is James Jordan discussing Genesis chapter 49 and the life of Jacob. On several occasions, I have mentioned to you that there's some evidence in the Bible that the Israelites continued to be active in the land of Canaan. And I've given you that that one piece of evidence. Chapter 48, verse 22 of Genesis, Jacob says to Joseph, I give you one portion over and above your brothers, which I took away from the Amorite with my sword and with my bow. We don't have any record of any war or conflict that Jacob fought with Amorites or Canaanites in which he took away any property with his sword and bow. So we can interpret this as a figure of speech or we can say that it refers to an event that's not recorded anywhere in the Bible. But last time I mentioned that there are indications that while the Israelites lived in the land of Goshen down in Egypt, they continued to pasture up in the land of Canaan once the famine was over. We've already seen back in chapter 37 that while Jacob and his family were living a long way from Shechem, his sons were pasturing near Shechem before he moved there. Oh, they were living in Hebron. And Joseph, visiting his brothers, went to Shechem, which was 50 or 60 miles, as I recall. And then he had to go on to Dothan, which was another 10 miles or so. These people would be located in one place. That's where their headquarters were. That's where their main tents were, the tents with wooden walls and like the tabernacle. And then they would go out and pasture many, many, many miles away. Remember that when Laban went out after Jacob, He had gone a three or four days journey away from Jacob to where they were shearing the sheep. And that's how Jacob was able to escape from Laban because Laban was several days journey away where his sheep were. So we ought not to think at any time that these people lived in their main headquarters tents, their elaborate tents with all their gold and silver and their wives and all the rest of it and that their sheep were just right across the valley from them. They could be anywhere. And it's perfectly understood. In fact, we would expect to be the case that while they lived in the land of Goshen, they would have pastured their sheep up in the places they were used to. They just have to make a few days trip and go up there. So not only do we have that as something that's just we can assume They would have pastured their flocks in Goshen, but also have gone up into the land of Canaan. We also know that Judah was up there, because when we looked at Genesis chapter 38, we saw that the story of Judah and his sons, and then his sons being killed, and then much later on, a much younger son is not given to Tamar, and then after a long time, she seduces Judah, 
and she gives birth to Perez and Zerah, that that has to come on down into the time after they've moved into Goshen. And yet they're continuing to pasture up in the land of Canaan because those events take place in Canaan. There's no way all of those things could have happened before they went down into Canaan. So again, they're still up in Canaan. And I wanted to point out to you one other thing, and that is in First Chronicles chapter 7, this part of the Bible that if we read, we go to sleep reading it. If you can't go to sleep some night and read First Chronicles 1 through 9, it'll put you there. Every now and then you find something buried in here, some little event that's interesting, like the prayer of Jabez in chapter 4. Maybe you've heard of that. You don't know anything about this man. He was a descendant of Judah. And we come on down through the genealogies and a bunch of people we've never heard of. And then in First Chronicles chapter 4, all of a sudden, we read that Jabez was more honorable than his brothers, and his mother named him Jabez, saying, Because I bore him with pain. And now Jabez called on the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that thou wouldst bless me indeed and enlarge my border, and that your hand might be with me, and that you would keep me from harm, that it may not pain me. It's a play on his name, pain. And God granted him what he requested. And then we go on with more genealogies. So there's little stuff buried in Chronicles, and it's kind of fun to find them. Well, here's one in First Chronicles chapter 7, verses 20 to 24, and I'll read that to you. The sons of Ephraim, and remember Ephraim is the son of Joseph, the sons of Ephraim were Shuthalah, and Barad his son, and Tehath his son, and Eliadah his son, and Tehath his son, and Zabad his son, and Shuthalah his son. And then here are two more sons of Ephraim, and Ezer and Eliad, whom the men of Gath who were born in the land killed because they came down to take their livestock. And their father Ephraim, so these are sons of Ephraim, grandsons of Joseph, mourned many days, and his relatives came to comfort him. And then he went into his wife, and she conceived and bore a son, and he named him Beriah, because misfortune had come on his house. Beriah means misfortune. And his daughter was Sherah. Not Sheena the jungle girl now, but Shira, who built lower and upper Beth Horon, also Uzan Shira. So she's an architect. And Repha was his son, along with Reshef, Tela his son, Tehath his son, Ladan his son, Ahud his son, Elishma his son, Nun his son, and Joshua his son. So you see the genealogy is designed to get us down to Joshua, the descendant of Ephraim. But along the way, we're told a couple of interesting things. We're told in verses 20 to 22 that Ephraim had three sons, Shuthalah, and then his descendants are listed, Barad, Tehath, Eliadah, Tehath, Zabad, and Shuthalah, pronouncing them in English or some approximation thereof, seven generations down. And then we go back to more sons, Ezer and Eliad. And then we're told they were killed by the men of Gath, Gittite raiders. It says, the men of Gath, Philistines, Egyptians, who were born in the land, Canaan, killed them because they came down to take their livestock. Now, who is taking whose livestock? I don't know. But maybe Ephraim's sons were coming to take the livestock of the men of Gath. I don't know, but this is up in the land of Canaan. You remember your map? The Mediterranean Sea looks like this, and Egypt is here, and the river is here, the Jordan River is here, and here's the land. And these Philistine cities are along the coast, we're down here in Goshen, but we're doing something up here where these Philistine cities are, near where Gath is, and getting into a war with them. And then after these boys were killed, Ephraim had another son, and he grows up, so we had another 20 years on here or so, 
And he has a daughter. So this is Ephraim's granddaughter. Her name is Shearah. Shearah. And she grows up, so we add another 20 or 30 years on to her, and we find that she is involved in building projects up in the land of Canaan. She builds Beth Horon, the house of Horon, and Uzan Shearah. Shearah's Uzan. I didn't look that word up. So Ephraim's granddaughter was an active builder in the land of Canaan. Now what does that tell you? That tells you that the reduction of the Israelites to slavery by Pharaoh did not happen for a long, long time. For a long time, while they were living in the land of Egypt, they prospered and they were able to go up into the land of Canaan and do this and do that. Get into wars with people, pasture up there, build things up there. Build cities, build towers, build storehouses that are still going to be there 130 years later when they conquer the land. So I've got down a chronology here, and these are on a Monday dates. And the ones that we are certain of from the chronology of the Bible don't have a question mark by them. But just to review it, and you can have this in your notes. In the year 2289 from creation, Joseph at the age of 30 stands before Pharaoh. Now that's according to the Bible chronology. That's the way Genesis gives it to us. We know that date. That one's fixed in terms of the numbers that are in Genesis. Well, he gets married, and then Manasseh and Ephraim are born. Ephraim is second born. Let's just put him three years after the marriage. Let's assume these kids came right away. Ephraim is born. And then we know that Israel moves to Goshen in 2298, at the second year of the famine. That's a fixed date. Jacob dies in 2313. That's a fixed date. Well, we have to have sons of Ephraim. If Ephraim was born around 2292, let's add 20 years to that. That's 2312, add a few more because we don't know, come to 2320, somewhere in there. Ephraim has these two sons, Ezer and Eliad. He's already had his firstborn son, Shuthalah. So these are born later, so this brings us around to about 2320. Well, these guys live for a while, and then they get into this war, and let's say they're killed at the age of 30. Because they can't be killed at the age of 100. Ephraim would already be dead by then. So they have to be killed young enough for Ephraim to have another son after they're dead. So let's say that they're killed around the age of 30. That's in 2350. And after Ephraim mourns, he has another son in 2351. That's Beriah. And Joseph dies in 2369. That's a fixed date. We know when that took place. And we certainly have not been reduced to slavery in Egypt yet. Well... Beriah, son of Ephraim, is born in 2351. Let's add about 24 years in there, and he has a daughter named Shira in 2375. Well, how long before she starts building things? I don't think she's building things when she's 17. She's probably older, gotten married, has some wealth. I've got down here about 2420 when she's 45 years old. She's active in Canaan building Beth Horon. Twelve years later, Pharaoh turns against Israel. One year after that, Moses is born 80 years before the Exodus. We don't know exactly, of course, when the Pharaoh turned against Israel and refused to acknowledge Joseph any longer. But there's no reason to think that happened early. I think we have in our minds that shortly after Joseph died, the Pharaoh said, 
I don't recognize Joseph anymore. In fact, I think most people have it in mind that a Pharaoh came along who never heard of Joseph. That's not possible. It says a Pharaoh arose who knew not Joseph. It means he didn't acknowledge him. He refused to acknowledge him. It's just like in Daniel, when Daniel stands before Belshazzar. Daniel's 90 years old. Daniel has been in the Babylonian court for 70 years. And Belshazzar says, who are you? And Belshazzar's mother says, well, there's this old guy around named Daniel that your father and grandfather used to listen to. And Belshazzar pretends not to know who he is. Well, of course, Belshazzar knew full well who Joseph was. Joseph had been around at court the whole time Belshazzar had been growing up. He just doesn't acknowledge him. So a new pharaoh comes along who doesn't acknowledge Joseph, but that didn't happen right away. This genealogical information forces us to understand that for a long time the Israelites prospered in the land of Goshen. Long after the time Joseph died, probably 50 years or so after the death of Joseph, they were still prospering in Goshen, still carrying on activities up in the land of Canaan. But then Pharaoh comes who doesn't acknowledge them. And that may have happened just before Moses was born. We read Exodus chapter 1. He reduces them to slavery shortly thereafter. He says, let's kill the boy babies, and that's the time Moses is born. And then as 80 years after that, before the Exodus, and another 40 years before they come back into the Promised Land. So there is a long time here. We don't know for sure, we're not told. But we can at least figure out a rough chronology here and have some idea of what the time might have been like. And I think it's useful to do that because these were real people who really lived in the real world. And this isn't fiction. These people actually lived in that world. And when the Bible gives us chronological and genealogical information, it helps us to know who was living when and what kinds of things they were doing. And they were engaged in military conflict with some of the Canaanites while they were living in the land of Goshen. And they were there for a while before things went bad. So I wanted to bring that to your attention, pull it all together, because I've referred to it a number of times, and disabuse us maybe of some of the ideas that we had picked up growing up from Sunday school. Anybody want to ask me questions about that? I think that's all the evidence there is in the Bible on the subject. Okay, now we're in chapter 49. And this is the testament of Jacob. I've got it down here. Jacob blesses his sons, 49, 1-28. Of course, there are judgments as well as blessings here. And so this is sometimes called the Testament of Jacob. But that word isn't in the text, and so call it what you want. The pericope begins in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 49. I'll read from Fox. Now, Yaakov called his sons and said, Gather around that I may tell you what will befall you in the aftertime of days. Come together and hearken, sons of Yaakov. Hearken to Yisrael, your father. And then he starts in with the sons, mostly in birth order, not completely. Reuven, Shimeon, Levi, and so forth. And then in verse 27, he ends with Benjamin. And verse 29, all these are the tribes of Israel, twelve. And this is what their father spoke to them. He blessed them according to what belonged to each as blessing. He blessed them. And then we shift gears again. He commanded them, charged them, saying, I'm about to be gathered to my kinspeople. Bury me with my fathers in the cave of Ephron the Hittite, so forth and so on. So the bookends of this section are that he called them together to be told about the future. And then in verse 28, 
this is what he spoke to them. He blessed them according to each his blessing. And it doesn't say he blessed and cursed, although he does. So we can call this the blessing of Jacob, and we are with the text in doing so. So he gathers them together in verses 1 and 2. Jacob called his sons and said, Gather around that I may tell you what will befall in the latter days. That's really what it says. And later on in the Bible, latter days, after time of days. After time of days is about as good a translation as latter days, but you see that expression, latter days, that's what it refers to. And by the way, now we have to say, latter days and former days are not technical terms in the Bible. It depends on who's saying them. It means what happens after this. Latter days to... Jacob is all the stuff after Jacob. Latter days to Ezekiel is all the stuff after Ezekiel. Now, in the prophets, it does start to take up a little bit of a technical meaning because the latter days refers to the last times of Israel and carries down to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And the New Testament picks up that phrase and calls it last days, again referring to the last days of the old creation. Last day in the singular refers to the second coming of Christ, the end of the present age. But usually last days or latter days is talking about the end of Israel and has a somewhat more technical meaning as you move toward that point. But here it just means afterwards. So we ought not to be looking for fulfillments of these predictions way off in the future to Jacob's day. This isn't talking about the time of Christ or the period after the return from exile, this is giving a general characterization of what will happen in the future. And notice this byplay again between the names Jacob and Israel in verse 2. Sons of Jacob, Jacob is the individual man. Israel, your father, Israel is his official name as the head of the clan. So he is their father in an official sense as well as in a biological sense. Abraham is our father in an official sense. Probably in a biological sense, too. You know, they say if you go back far enough in history, everybody's related to everybody else. I mean, we're all descended from Charlemagne, as I understand it. I guess we're probably all descended from Abraham, too. I mean, that's easy to prove, isn't it? All you have to do is show that you have two parents, and your wife has two parents, and your mother and your father each have two, and then that becomes four, and then eight. And then the next generation back is 16, and then 32 and 64. And you go back about 15 generations, and you've got hundreds and thousands and then millions and millions of people. You hit everybody. So I guess we all are literally descendants of Abraham by now at this phase in history, but that doesn't make any difference. It doesn't mean anything. Remember that Joseph is the father of Pharaoh. Father doesn't just mean biology. It means official fatherhood. And so, Joseph is the father of Pharaoh, according to the text we just read last couple of times ago. And now, he says, Israel is your father. He was the biological father of these sons, but more importantly, as Israel, he is their official father. And they are the sons of Jacob in the literal biological sense. They are the sons of Israel in the official sense. That Israel means God's wrestler, one who wrestles for God, one who wrestles with God, And so that's who they're all supposed to be. And we have time today to look at the first two prophecies. These are both judgments. We have to eliminate Reuben, Simeon, and Levi because of their sins. And the blessings that should have come to Reuben would be passed to Simeon. 
and they don't go to Simeon because of his sins, and they don't go to Levi, and they just drop down onto Judah. And Judah would receive the blessing and the rulership. He would receive the double portion, which is the blessing, twice as much as all the other sons, and he would also receive the rulership, being firstborn, he would be over all the other brothers. But we already know that the double portion has gone to Joseph, and Judah will receive the kingship, but not the double portion. And we might as well go ahead and nail this down. If your Bible does not give you this cross-reference, you ought to pencil it in, because it's one of those things that if anybody ever asks you, okay, prove that, prove who gets the firstborn and who gets the rulership and all that, it's clear from all the details here, but it's laid out in black and white in First Chronicles chapter 5, verses 1 to 2. That verse again is First Chronicles 5, 1 to 2. One more time, First Chronicles 5, 1 to 2. And the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel so that he is not enrolled in the genealogy according to the birthright, the birthrights given to Joseph. Though Judah prevailed over his brothers, and from him comes the leader, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. So birthright and rulership both should have been to Reuben. Reuben blows it, and so the birthright, double portion, goes to Joseph, and that's why Joseph's two sons are adopted by Jacob we saw last time. Jacob now says, Ephraim and Manasseh are my sons, equal to the others. And that's the double portion that goes to Joseph. And then the rulership will go to Judah. So here we are, and here the judgment comes on Reuben. Fox has it this way. Reuben, my firstborn are you. My might, first fruit of my vigor, surpassing in loftiness, surpassing in force. Headlong like water, surpass no longer. For when you mounted your father's bed, then you defiled it, he mounted the couch. Now there are ten statements here, and I see that my typesetting efforts have messed up here. The first three statements should be grouped together. My firstborn, my might, first fruit of my strength. Those are three statements about how Reuben is the one who, coming first, is considered to have the most of his father. Now, I don't think we're supposed to take that literally. I don't believe that the first child we have is more like his father than the later children are. And I don't think that's what it means, but it does mean this, and you know this probably from hearing it other places, that the oldest child, since he doesn't have any other children ahead of him, has to forge relationships with adults. Whereas the second child has got the firstborn, the older child, to kind of give him covering. And so firstborn children usually develop relationships with adults more readily than younger children do. And their psychology is somewhat different. And there's all these studies about birth order and all the rest that you can consult on that. And I think that does factor in here. Reuben would be the one who, having spent more time with adults growing up, is set to be in charge, but he's not going to be. He is firstborn, he is my might, he says, and first fruit 
of my strength. This is all language we'll see in a moment that is picked up later on in the sacrificial system, and there's a reason for that. And then he says three things further about it, that he is excelling in majesty or outstanding or preeminent or surpassing. It says here, surpassing in loftiness, surpassing in majesty with New American Standard. The old New American Standard Bible that I have says preeminent in dignity. All the same basic idea. Excelling in majesty, preeminent in dignity, surpassing in loftiness, outstanding. And he says the same thing, surpassing, outstanding, preeminent, excelling in power. And then he says, unstable as water, or literally frothy as water. And here, this old New American Standard Bible says, uncontrolled as water. Well, that's a good question, isn't it? What does it say there? Because that word, uncontrolled or frothy, only occurs here in the Bible. And what it seems to mean is water that bubbles over. Well, is that a picture of instability and sin? Or is it a picture of having a lot of capacity and having a lot of life and being excelling and outstanding? Well, I think it is a positive picture. I think it's parallel. We have three sets of parallel statements here. And in terms of that, the statement, frothy like water, bubbling over like water, is a positive statement that is parallel to excelling in majesty and excelling in power and bubbling over like water, like a spring of water. So three statements, my firstborn, my might, first fruit of my strength. Three more statements, surpassing in majesty, surpassing in power, bubbling over like water. And then he comes to the statement, Preeminent no longer, surpassing no longer, outstanding no longer, excelling no longer. That's it. It's all canceled. And then he has three statements of what he did. You mounted your father's bed, you defiled it, and then he turns to the other sons, who may not have known about this, and he says, he mounted the couch. Now we all remember what this refers to, and there's no need to review it, except to say, we've looked at this in the past, in terms of the way Israel is arranged around the throne of God, the four faces of the cherubim and the four cardinal constellations which correspond to the faces of the cherubim. Reuben is the man, the man face, which is the man who pours out water. So this links very nicely with Reuben. Jacob is the lion, Ephraim the ox, and Dan is the eagle, and these are the four faces of the cherubim which point in these four directions, and if you look at the sky, those are your four cardinal constellations pictured as a heavenly people around the throne of God. So that that's all from the past when we looked at the book of Revelation and we saw how that stuff flows in there. But I want to remind you of it here because pouring out a lot of water is there. Now this word, he defiled the couch, is language that is used primarily in the sacrificial system later on. And firstborn and firstfruit are as well. And that's because the firstborn son is the one you expect to be the priest. The firstborn son is the deacon who assists his father in worship in patriarchal times. The father is the supervisor of the altar, and he's the one who leads in worship. And his firstborn son is his deacon who assists him. When Israel comes out of Egypt, God claims the firstborn sons to be priests. And then, because of their sin of the golden calf, the firstborn sons are set aside, and he claims the Levites instead. 
But the fact that this language of firstborn, first fruit, defilement, somewhat priestly language shows up here in connection with Reuben, is already anticipating future events. Only thing is, Reuben is going to lose all this. He's going to lose the priestly privileges of firstborn son and the kingly privileges and the double portion privileges. Anything else here? I've got down set aside for Joseph and Judah. There is, of course, a play on language and concepts here. If he is bubbling over like water, the specific sin that he committed is analogous to that. I won't explain that. I assume it's clear enough to you. The sin of fornication is a sin with water that comes from the innermost parts and is an abuse of power. And he is the one with the power, and he abused the power, he abused his water, he abused his fountain. So that's how the language connects in this statement here. God gives him more water, loftiness, force, vigor, might than the other sons, and he turns around and abuses it in this rebellion against his father. And we pointed out when we looked at the story of Reuben and his sin that this business of sleeping with the father's concubine is a way of taking the father's position, laying claim to it. That's what Absalom did with David. Remember the advice of Ahithophel. If you really want to communicate to the people that you are now the king and that you have replaced your father, then visit your father's concubines and everybody will understand. And he doesn't have the power to protect his women anymore, and you now have the women. So that's the idea. That's what Reuben did, and he was sending a signal that Jacob didn't have power to protect his women, and that he was taken over. And that's the sin. It's the sin of rebellion. And the rebellion is like witchcraft. It's a defiling act, and it leads to completely being set aside. And then we have this last phrase here, he mounted the couch. The liberal commentators have a field day with this. Here's a mistake, an error that comes from transcribing this from some other source. I should say, you mounted the couch because he's talking to Reuben. Well, common sense tells you, and the conservative commentators will tell you, no, he just turns and talks to the other boys there. Boys and grown men, older guys in their 50s and 60s now. says, this is what he did. And he's explaining it to them as well. So that's Reuben. Reuben is given all the power and the force and the privileges of firstborn, and he abused it in an act of rebellion and spilled his water and is set aside. God killed Onan for something similar. Abuse with power and water. So now we come to Simeon and Levi, the next two sons, and with Reuben set aside, then it would have gone to Simeon to be the firstborn. But we remember that Simeon and Levi murdered all the men at Shechem. So they're going to be set aside as well. And now I'm going to read from Fox, and then I'll read a translation I have here, and we'll discuss it for a few minutes, and we'll be done. Simeon and Levi, such brothers, wronging weapons are their ties of kinship. To their counsel may my being never come. In their assembly may my person never unite. For in their anger they kill men. In their self-will they maim bulls. Damned be their anger that is so fierce, their fury that is so harsh. I will split them up in Yaakov. I will scatter them in Yisrael. A bit tough there, his attempt to be literal. Here's mine. We have another set of ten statements here. Interesting that 
both of the first two judgments give a whole decalogue of ten words. Decalogue means ten words. Ten basic statements against each one of them. A judgment. Brothers they destroyed. They treated violently their circumcised covenant fellows. That would be parallel. This is one way to translate this statement. This first verse. Verse 5 is hard to translate. There are problems with it. You'll notice I give you a different translation. Simeon and Levi, brothers. Articles of violence are their circumcision knives. Or articles of violence are their weapons. We don't know exactly what this word that I've got translated circumcision knives or weapons means. It only occurs once. seems to be related to the Greek word machaira, which is a short sword. But we don't know for sure. And another way to translate it is... Brothers they destroyed, they treated violently their circumcised covenant fellows, those made brothers by circumcision. Well, that gives you two parallel statements, and that's why I like that translation. And it's a very accurate way of describing what they did. They destroyed their brothers. Just as Cain murdered Abel, so they got all these men of Shechem to circumcise themselves, so they become covenant brothers, and then they murdered them. And Cain was scattered in the land and driven out, to be scattered in a land of wandering, and that's exactly what happens to Simeon and Levi. They receive the curse of Cain. They will be scattered in Israel because they committed the sin of Cain to murder the covenant brother. So now I'll read this again. Ten statements. The first two. These are in pairs instead of in triples like with Reuben. Brothers they destroyed. They treated violently their circumcised covenant fellows. Nice ABBA form there. Nice chiasm. Brothers they destroyed. They violated their brothers, their fellows. Second pair. Into their council let not my soul enter. Into their assembly let not my glory join. Third pair. For in their anger they killed a man, and in their pleasure they hamstrung an ox. Fourth statement. Cursed is their anger so fierce, and their fury so cruel. And last pair. I hereby scatter them in Jacob. I hereby disperse them in Israel. Well, there's just basically an argument here. First of all, their sin, they broke the brother covenant with the Shechemites. Back in chapter 34. They broke the brother covenant and they murdered their brothers. And I think calling the Shechemites circumcised covenant fellows, I like that way of translating it, and I hope that's the right way to do it. But because of the obscurity of the Hebrew, we can't be absolutely sure. And then, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, Israel rejects covenant fellowship with them. They broke off and rejected covenant fellowship with these converted Shechemites, and so Israel rejects fellowship with them. Into their council let not my soul enter, into their assembly let not my glory join. I won't be involved with them. And that's exactly a good punishment. They would not be rightly involved with their covenant fellows, the Shechemites, and so I won't be involved with them. By the way, God never forgot the covenant with Shechemites. If you look very carefully, the Shechemites are Hivites, and they're the only Hivites mentioned in the Bible except for the Gibeonites. And when we come into the land in Joshua's day and the Gibeonites become part of Israel and the Gibeonites become the assistants and workers at the temple, that's this same group of people. Of course, 
They murdered all the first ones they circumcised, so they're not literally descendants of the Shechemites, but they're the same group of people. And they are brought back in as covenant fellows later on. And when King Saul murders a bunch of them, Saul is committing the same sin as Simeon and Levi. So there's a whole tapestry of history that starts here with these Hivites and their murder by Simeon and Levite, and then more Hivites in the days of Joshua, and the whole history down from there, and how they are more faithful than Israel. They're the ones who take care of the ark, the ark and the tabernacles at Gibeon. It's at the house of Minadab on the hill, and those are Gibeonite people, Shechemites. So, at this point in time, Israel rejects being part of them because they rejected their brothers. And then he says, in their anger they killed a man, in their pleasure they hamstrung an ox. The ox here refers to Israel, or Jacob. Remember what he says at the end of chapter 34? He said, you've made me stink in the nostrils of all these people. The story in chapter 34 began with Jacob moving to that area. He moves to the area of Shechem after Joseph is killed. And we can sort of figure out why. And it just occurred to me, but I'll spread this on you too. Remember that we saw earlier in the hour here, in chapter 37, Jacob and his family are living in Hebron, and they're going up to Shechem to pasture. And Joseph is sold into slavery in the area of Shechem. Supposedly he's killed up there. They bring back his bloodied coat, tunic. So what happens next? Well, the next thing that happens in history It's not in the narrative order of Genesis, but the chronology tells us exactly when these things happen. Jacob moves up to the area of Shechem. What's he doing up there? Well, that's where the pastures are, but he may be hoping that maybe Joseph is still alive and up there somewhere. At any rate, in chapter 34, which happens after Joseph is sold into slavery, he moves up there and it says he set up an altar there and he starts evangelizing. Because that's what these altars always mean in Genesis. Jacob is evangelizing among the people there. And then, of course, the prince of the town of Shechem, Salem, attacks Dinah. But then he repents. And they are converted, and they are circumcised, and they are murdered. And then Jacob says, I have to move away from here. You made me stink in all the nostrils of these people. I can't conduct my evangelistic work here. I have no credibility here. And he says... You have brought trouble on me, and the Hebrew word for trouble is akar, and the word for hamstring and ox is akar. The difference is between a K and a Q, a cough and a cough. And to anybody hearing this in Hebrew, the connection will be clear. Commentators frequently point this out. It's not exactly a secret, except that in English you don't hear it, of course. You never get this in English. So that's why you have a Sunday school teacher who can at least read a Hebrew interlinear to point out to you that the parallel is there. So their sin, they murdered some people, and also that has the effects of hamstringing the witness of the covenant community. The whole purpose of Israel was to be a light to the nations. They were never called just to be saved. They were called to minister to the nations. That's what God said to Abraham. And now that ministry is wrecked. Nobody will believe us anymore after we circumcise these people and then murder them. Then he says that vengeance brings a curse. Cursed is their anger so fierce and their fury so cruel. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Don't you do it. Read the play of Hamlet if you don't believe me. Hamlet's a standard revenge tragedy. You get involved in taking revenge. At the end, everybody's dead. 
And that's what revenge tragedies always point out in English literature. And they're right out of the Bible. These guys wanted to take revenge. Should they have treated our sister like a harlot? Well, they didn't treat their sister like a harlot. The boy seduced her, and he shouldn't have done that, but then he tried to make it good, and he offered all kinds of money, and he converted. But they wanted to take revenge, and now they're cursed. If you take your own revenge, you will be cursed. And then it says, I scattered them in Jacob and dispersed them in Israel. Well, that's the curse of Cain to be sent out into a land of wandering after you murder your brother. And it comes here again. Genesis, everything is connected together in Genesis, especially since what begins in Genesis returns at the end. And here's a good example of it. And beyond that, those who seek dominion through violence will lose dominion. They took all the possessions of those people. Remember in chapter 34, they killed all the men and then they took all the women and they took all the gold and silver and the cattle and all the rest of it. But they're not going to have it. They're going to be scattered and dispersed. Now, the afterlife of this prophecy, we know that that cursing was turned to a blessing for both of these tribes later on. The Levites proved to be faithful at the golden calf. And so they were scattered in Israel, but scattered as a priestly people and given special honors. The Simeonites chose to identify with the tribe of Judah, and they were scattered in Judah. But if you read Judges chapter 1, you read Joshua, you'll find that by linking up with Judah, the Simeonites were linking up with the royal tribe. And later on in history, when the northern tribes went into exile, the Simeonites, being part of Judah, got to stay in the land much longer and receive the blessings of being closely connected with Judah, the royal tribe. So, in both of these cases, they were scattered. Simeon was scattered in the south, in Judah. Levi was scattered in the entire land. But in both cases, because of repentance, they were able to turn this curse into a blessing. But for right now, they're being set aside. Next time, we will see the blessing that comes to Judah because the first three sons have been set aside and now the firstborn blessing, well, the firstborn rulership at least, will descend to Judah. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.